Happy birthday, America. We celebrate with an invitation to an American Family Radio Special. America, the handwriting is on the wall, featuring Dr. Ray Pritchard. Ray is a frequent co-host of today's issues and serves as president of Keep Believing Ministries. And now here's Ray with America, the handwriting is on the wall. Everyone loves a party. That's what the king was counting on. The year, 539 B.C. The place, the royal palace of Babylon. Almost 70 years have passed since the day Daniel and the other Jewish teenagers arrived from Jerusalem. Daniel the prophet is now over 80 years old. Nebuchadnezzar the king has been dead for 24 years. His grandson Belshazzar sits on the throne, on the throne of the shrinking empire centered in the great city of Babylon. Outside the massive walls, the mighty Medo-Persian army has surrounded the city. From being the mightiest empire on earth, Babylon the city is all that is left. In the city, the residents feel secure. And why not? After all, they are protected by a double line of high walls that stretch 17 miles around the outer circumference of the city. Over 100 watchtowers offered excellent protection for the soldiers who stand guard. The Euphrates River ran diagonally through the city, and the walls were built over the water so that no floating army could enter by surprise. Finally, Babylon the city contained a 20-year stockpile of food and supplies. Those surrounded the people of Babylon felt that no army could conquer them. They could outlast any siege. With that as background, we come to the events of Daniel chapter 5. According to secular history, the date is October 12, 539 BC. All over the city, people are excited because the king was throwing a massive party. 1,000 nobles were invited, counting waiters, guards, visitors, and various onlookers. The total crowd could number well over 5,000. The party was intentional. It was the king's way of diverting attention from the events outside the walls. It was a massive morale booster meant to lift the spirits of the entire city. The king knew that to have a good party, you needed three things, food, wine, and available women, preferably all three at the same time and in abundance. Such a party would have started early in the day and lasted until after midnight. Course after course would be served. Wine would flow freely. Entertainment would accompany the food and wine. Sexual pleasure was there for the taking. Evidently, the party got off to a good start. Lots of laughter, lots of music, lots of food, plenty of wine for everyone. No one knows when the idea first came to King Belshazzar but at some point, perhaps sometime in the early evening, he decided to bring out the gold and silver goblets that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem almost 70 years earlier. Since that time, the goblets had been stored somewhere in the royal palace in Babylon. And evidently, until this moment, no one had ever thought to bring them out and make them part of some kind of public celebration. The king called his servants and whispered the command. They nodded and disappeared. 
Within a few minutes, they returned carrying the goblets. Oohs and ahs went up from the crowd. First the king, then his wives and concubines, then all the nobles of Babylon drank from the holy goblets taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. From somewhere, maybe from some distant corner, someone began to sing a song of praise to the gods of Babylon. Others picked it up, and with one voice, the drunken party-goers praised the gods they worshipped, gods of silver, gold, stone, and wood. There was laughter, shouting, and degenerate things said as the wine took effect. This was exactly what the king had wanted, a wild, uninhibited party to help people forget the trouble on the other side of the city walls. And it worked like a charm. When the party started, Daniel was nowhere to be found. No doubt he was in his room, resting and praying. And why would they want Daniel in the first place? After all, if you invite one of those narrow-minded Bible believers, sooner or later, they're going to be offended, make a big scene, cause trouble, break up the party. Better to leave them off the guest list altogether. But if Daniel wasn't present at that moment, someone else was. Suddenly, God crashes the party in a most dramatic fashion. Without warning, a disembodied hand began to write on the plaster wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. No body, no face, no torso, just some fingers writing on the plaster wall. When the king saw the words being formed on the wall, the color drained out of his face and he turned white as a sheet. At first, the king thought he was seeing things, but then he realized the party had stopped. There was dead silence in the room. This was no illusion, no party trick, no stunt, no game. This was real. Everyone saw the same thing. The king grew faint, his knees buckled, and he almost collapsed. Just as suddenly as it had appeared, the finger vanished. But the words remain, for words in Aramaic, the trade language of that day. The handwriting on the wall read like this, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparson. What does it mean? The king didn't know, so he called for the astrologers and the magicians and the enchanters and his mathematicians and his academic leaders. These men used various secret and strange techniques to solve riddles and advise the king about the future. The king's offer was simple. The man who figures out what the four words mean will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. It was the chance of a lifetime. And so those men stood and looked. They peered at the wall. They read the words. They talked to one another. They couldn't do it. All the king's men tried. Every single one failed. What a way to end the party. No one knew what to do. The nobles were baffled at what it all meant. They had come to get drunk and have some fun on the side. They hadn't bargained on this. It was getting late now, and in another part of the palace, the queen mother was getting ready for bed. 
When she heard shouts from the banquet hall, she came in, surveyed the scene, and realized at once what had happened. As she thought about the strange handwriting on the wall, a name from the past came to her mind. She remembered a man who had once helped her father interpret one of his dreams. His name was Daniel. Many years ago, he had come as a teenager to Babylon, one of the Jewish hostages taken in the first deportation from Jerusalem. Call for Daniel, she said. He has wisdom and insight, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. He will tell you what the writing means. I do not know what the king was thinking, but I do know this. A drowning man will grasp at anything. So the king called for Daniel, and he came. Enter Daniel, a former slave, once a teenage hostage. Now he is a very old man. All his adult life, he has served in the court of the king of Babylon. More than once, he had pulled Nebuchadnezzar out of a jam. Evidently, he had been faithful to God all his life. Never once had he compromised his values, even though he lived his entire adult life in a pagan land, serving in a pagan government. Somehow, he managed to keep his values intact while serving in Babylon. Now he is called for his last act of service to a Babylonian king. I pause here to make a point made over a century ago by Joseph Parker, the famous London preacher. When the world throws a wild party, the children of God are not invited. We don't fit in, and our values would just be a nuisance when the world wants to party. But let a marriage break up, or let cancer hit, or let the kids get in trouble, or the career hit the rocks. Who do they call then? They call the faithful men and women who know the Lord. Daniel wasn't invited to the party, but when God intervened and no one had the answer, suddenly Daniel is the one man the king wants to hear from. Friends, we never know our influence until a crisis comes. What an encouragement this is. You may be stuck in an office or a classroom or a factory or a neighborhood or a club, or a family gathering where you are the only Christian. You may feel overlooked and taken for granted, or possibly ridiculed and misunderstood. Bide your time, my Christian friend, and do not despair. Soon enough, life will come tumbling in, and the people who have no time for you will turn to you for answers. You may not be invited to every party, but you will get the call when trouble comes. When it happens, be bold and speak the truth in love. So Belshazzar offered him the same deal. That is, Belshazzar said to Daniel, I will do for you what I promised to do for my astrologers and the enchanters and the other wise men. If only Daniel could interpret the four words written on the wall, the king would give him the robe of royalty, a chain of solid gold, and he, he Daniel, would be named the third highest ruler in all of Babylon. Whatever else you can say, this much is certain. Daniel was not lacking in self-confidence. 
It took a lot to impress him, and this half-drunk, staggering monarch did not impress him at all. Daniel had seen better in his day. After all, Daniel had served in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest kings in history. So Daniel says, O king, keep your rewards, keep your prizes. I don't need them, but I will explain the writing to you. Daniel goes on to point out that by drinking wine from the sacred goblets and by praising the gods of Babylon, Belshazzar had set himself up against the God of heaven. It was a direct, public, premeditated assault on the Lord. The idols cannot see, hear, or understand, but Belshazzar had provoked, quote, the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. That's Daniel chapter 5, verse 23. That's why God sent the hand that made the strange writing on the wall. Daniel's explanation is short and to the point. Mene. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign, and now your number is up. Tekel. Tekel means weighed. God has weighed your life in the scales of justice, and you have come up short. O king, you don't measure up. Parson. Parson means divided. Your kingdom is about to be broken up. These mysterious words are a message from God that Belshazzar's reign is over. His life will soon end and his kingdom will be divided and given to someone else. The king must have sobered up by now and may even have believed what Daniel was telling him. He ordered the purple robe to be given to Daniel along with the gold chain, and he turned to the thousand nobles and announced that as of that night, Daniel was the third highest ruler in the kingdom. The end of the story comes quickly. Verse 30 of Daniel 5 tells us Belshazzar was slain that very night, but no details are given. Secular history fills in the gaps. The army of the Medes and Persians was camped near the Euphrates River. Historians tell us that Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians in a surprise attack. The army managed to divert the river into a nearby lake. When the river dried up, the way was open into the city. One ancient writer even says that when the army entered the city, they found the Babylonians feasting in a time of drunken revelry. Not long after Daniel gave his solemn message to the king, the Medo-Persian army entered Babylon almost without a fight. Before sunrise, Belshazzar was dead and the Babylonian empire came to an inglorious end. Let me draw the moral of the story quickly. Daniel 5.22 emphasizes that King Belshazzar knew the past. He knew that God had judged his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar for pride. Daniel's point is, O king, you should have known better. When you took the silver and gold goblets and used them in that wild party, you were practically daring God to punish you and God called your bluff. We may sum up this truth in four statements. 
First, Babylon became great because of the sovereign blessing of God. Second, when they became great, their pride made them forget God. Third, when they forgot God, they began to take Him for granted. And fourth, when they took Him for granted, God judged them and they were no longer a great nation. Daniel 5 is in the Bible for a very particular reason so that we will know that what happened to Babylon may also happen to us. Search through the rubble of history. See the great nations come and go. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And in the last hundred years, the communist empire and the Third Reich of Hitler have both come and gone. The tendency of every nation is the same, to believe we will always be a superpower, to slowly push God out of the picture, to take Him out of public life, to forbid the mention of His name, to ridicule those who still believe in Him, to promote those who exalt man and downplay God, to chafe at the absolutes, to rewrite the record book, and to live by our own rules. Over time, we take God for granted. We turn to our own idols of technology, and we begin to worship the things we make with our own hands. In the end, God judges that nation, and it is no longer great. And note this biblical fact. Judgment often comes at the hand of another nation God raises up for that very purpose. Now, it's the 4th of July weekend once again. I love this holiday. I'm thankful for fireworks and french fries, for grilled hamburgers and ice-cold Coke, for Uncle Bill and Aunt Alfreda who drove down from Washington so they could sleep in the big bed and you could sleep on the couch. I love the parades and the marching bands and the flags lining the streets. I love the music of this holiday. God bless America, Yankee Doodle, this land is your land, tis a grand old flag, and God bless the USA. If the founders of this country could somehow join us in 2020, I'm sure they would be amazed at how God has blessed the nation they established in the midst of a revolution whose issue was then still in doubt. They would hardly recognize America in the 21st century, but they would no doubt be glad that we take at least one day each year to remember the past. For that surely is the purpose of this holiday, that we would remember our past and ponder our future. In many ways, 2020 has been unexpected. Whatever plans we had in January soon disappeared with the onset of the coronavirus and with the recent turmoil in cities across America. On one hand, we wonder when things will get back to normal. On the other hand, we're not sure what normal means anymore. Oh, how quickly things have changed. We like to say that we are the greatest nation on earth, and even if we leave that open for debate, we cannot deny we have been uniquely blessed by God. While we pause to celebrate this weekend, we would do well to think about America from God's point of view. When God weighs us on the scales of justice, what does He find? Well, we have done our best to shut God and His Word out of our national life. 
We bar God from the classroom and the courtroom. We mock any office holder who takes the Bible seriously. What is the inevitable result? Killing the unborn, the divorce epidemic, child abuse, lawlessness in our streets, distrust of our system, broken homes, deceit in high places, and a slow decline in belief in God across our culture. People say, when will God judge America? My friend, He is already judging America. God's judgment isn't always thunder and lightning. More often, God judges people by saying, you wanted to live without me? Now you will have your chance, but you won't be happy with the results. Part of the paradox is that in some respects, things have never been better. Compared to 1776, we have an easy life. But do we have the courage of our founders? Would we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor as they did so long ago? The current crisis will be a blessing if it leads us to turn back to the God who made us. That's why I'm hopeful about the future, even as I ponder the problems we face. We're not yet where Babylon was on that fateful night when Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall. Let us then rededicate ourselves to being one nation under God. As we celebrate this 4th of July, let's remember that true freedom comes through Jesus Christ. Is it too late for America to turn to God? I don't believe so. But I do believe the handwriting is on the wall. Here is a message for all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike. We know that God judges every human heart. He looks not simply at our outward actions, but He also inspects our inner motivations, thoughts, dreams, and secrets. Everything is laid bare before His eyes. Nothing is hidden from Him. Today, is the day of salvation. It is also the day for all of us to make a new start with the Lord. This is the day to forgive, to repent, to remember, to renew our vows, to repair broken relationships, and to encourage a fellow pilgrim. The challenge is always personal. The national renewal we need must begin in each of us personally. No one knows what tomorrow may bring. When we say we want to see America turn back to God, let's make sure we ourselves have turned back to God. I don't know what the future holds, but I know that God is able to restore us and heal us if we repent of our sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. America, is the handwriting on the wall? I believe the answer is yes. I pray we will heed God's message before it is too late. We cannot mock God and expect to receive His blessings. But if we turn to the Lord, He will turn to us. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and He will have mercy on them and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. If we expect God to bless America. We must seek Him, and that starts with you and with me. With that thought, I wish you and yours a safe and happy 4th of July, and may God bless America now and forever. 
This has been America. The handwriting is on the wall. An American Family Radio special for Independence Day featuring Dr. Ray Pritchard. Ray is president of Keep Believing Ministries and a frequent co-host for today's issues. Ray's message is available on our podcast page at AFR.net. Learn more about Keep Believing Ministries or connect with Ray by visiting KeepBelieving.com.